the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this July 4th holiday weekend. It's a pleasure again to be with you all, Dave's listeners. It's an honor to share my thoughts on Dave's behalf. I want to jump right into it as I usually do. You know, politics these days is as divisive as it has ever been. And one of the reasons it's divisive is because the left has it ratcheted up to 11. There is no in-between for the left. Everything is at 11. And so there's an article in USA Today. It's actually an opinion piece by the son of Bill de Blasio, or as I like to call him, Bill de blah, blah, Blasio. As you likely know, Bill de blah, blah, Blasio is the mayor of New York. I'm originally from the state of New York, and I lived in New York City. Luckily, not under the guidance of Bill de blah, blah, Blasio. Nonetheless, he's running for president now. He's at zero in the polls. I foresee he's going to double that by next week. He's probably going to be at zero next week as well. And in three weeks, he'll triple it, being at zero in three weeks as well. In any event, there's an op-ed, an opinion piece in USA Today by Bill de Blasio's son, which is nice. I've seen him a little bit on television, a very tall young man. And as you likely know, or might not know, in fact, Uh, Bill de Blasio is married to an African-American woman, and so he has a biracial child uh, who um, certainly uh, has uh, the appearance of an African-American, meaning I don't know. uh, The left and the right never seem to be able to know what terminology to use. Uh, I think he's most accurately described as half white and half black. But whatever the case may be, Bill de Blasio referred to him on stage during the debates as his black son. So, so be it. They are all, he and his son, that is, are welcome to characterize the race of his son however they see fit. His son's name is Dante de Blasio, and Dante wrote this opinion piece, and it said, my dad gave me the, the talk, the talk in quotes, when someone called the police... I felt fear. So he goes on to say, I'll read you a little of this article, and then I want to discuss it with you all. You can call in if you like, or we can sort of discuss it as I do in my classes, often rhetorically. De Blasio's son says, last week on the debate stage, my dad mentioned the time we had to talk about how to interact with police. The The following story is familiar to many people of color, yet rarely heard in the political arena. Let's stop there for a moment. 
rarely heard in the political arena. Rarely heard in the political arena. When was the last time you didn't hear about someone saying they had to give the talk to their young black child, if they had a young black child, about interacting with the police? Now, I think they do have that talk. I think that's a truthful statement. And I think there is a basis in history to have that talk, although I think that the left overstates its current relevance. But I think that talk is smart. And I'll tell you later in this conversation, my dad had that talk with me. And I ain't black. If you've seen me, I'm as pale as the tissue box in front of me. Because it wasn't about race. It was about interacting with the police in general. But I'm not trying to put aside the very real fact that a lot of young black men have had the talk with a parent and that there is a racial component to that talk rooted in history. Absolutely. So, so far, as hard as it may be to believe, the de Blasios and I are on the same page. Wait, what? Wait, what? You agree with those leftists? Well, listen, when facts are facts, you know what they are? They're facts. There's no disputing facts. And so far, the only facts that we have discussed here is A, parents, in this case, black parents, having a, well, actually, in de Blasio's case, a white parent. But uh, in this case, in any case, parents having a discussion with a black child about how to interact with the police. But as I said to you a moment ago, that conversation doesn't only happen with black children. But we're focusing in on that aspect of it for the moment. That's the fact. That happens. Has there been a history over the last 200 years? And by the way, even less than that, right? In which interactions between blacks and the police have been tainted by bad behavior? Informed by racism? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I think that's the prevalent attitude of the police police today? Nope, I do not. But let me let you know a little secret. Does it make it a bad idea for a parent to tell a black child to have the talk with him? Even if that parent agrees with me that that's not the prevalent attitude with the police today. No, it's not a bad idea at all. And as I'm going to tell you in a few moments, my dad had that talk with me, absent the race component. So, so far, me and the de Blasios are one big happy family. The only difference is they desperately believe that Bill de Blasio has a chance to win president or dog catcher or anything. And I think he's just slightly less nutty than that crystal-hugging woman on the end of the second debate stage for the Democrats a few weeks ago. And when I say slightly, I mean slightly less nutty. So, Bill de Blasio's son, Dante, goes on and says, when I was in eighth grade, my family and I went to Atlanta to visit some of my mother's relatives. Toward the end of my trip, my my white father and two of my black cousins sat me down for a serious talk. They told me I was getting older. They needed to make sure that I knew how to talk to the police. 
They ran through what they thought were the most important things. What to avoid? Sudden movements. Back talking. Reaching for anything, even your wallet, without telling the officer what you're about to do. What the consequences of a small mistake could be. Getting arrested or maybe even shot. Now, let's step away from the article again. That discussion right there, as you might notice, no reference to race. That discussion right there was the same discussion my father had with me. No reference to race. Now, here's how the conversation went with my father. My father said, Rob, kids are stupid. You're a kid, therefore you're stupid. I said, but dad, dad, I'm an A student. Yeah, you're a very bright, stupid kid. And you're still stupid. And so when you come in contact with a cop, here's what you're going to want to do. You're going to want to be a big mouth, smart ass. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because he'll crack you in the head. He'll arrest you. And what are you going to get out of it? You're some sort of big shot? You're showing off for your friends? What are you doing? You say, yes, sir. No, sir. And you hand him whatever he wants you to hand. And don't be digging around in your pockets or your backpack or something like that. That cop doesn't know what you're digging around for. So it's the same conversation. By the way, I, I went uh, to college with a good friend of mine uh, who went on to become a federal agent. And he told me something similar. He said, if you get pulled over, don't go routing around in your bag for your wallet or anything like that. When the cop is coming up to your car, your hands better be on the wheel. Now, if you got your wallet tucked away somewhere and you're able to get it out beforehand, then do that. But you make sure your hands are on the wheel when he comes up to the car. Why? Because he doesn't need to guess what you're doing. He can't tell the difference if you're riding around for your wallet or if you're riding around for a gun. Don't be stupid. So I got this talk more than one time. And it's good darn advice. Tell your kids this talk. I don't care if they're black. I don't care if they're white. I don't care if they're a mixture of anything. Give them that talk. So Dante de Blasio had this talk with his father. His father was smart smart to give him that talk. Absolutely. Let's go back to the article. Dante says that his dad was stressing these possible consequences that we just talked about. Worried that a 13-year-old wouldn't understand. Exactly. Sounds like my dad. Because kids are stupid. I remember, says Dante, them awkwardly looking at each other, searching for the best way to convey the gravity of the situation until I spoke up and said, you don't need to keep telling me. I know what can happen. Even then, goes on Dante, not long after the murder of, Tra- uh, not long after the murder of Trayvon Martin, but still years before the deaths of Eric Gardner, so many uh, and so many others, I had heard the stories enough times. When I was 18, says Dante, I went to visit my sister in San Jose 
during my spring break. I knew a few people in San Francisco, so I decided to visit them after spending a few days with her. I got off the train about 11 p.m. and decided to walk. I eventually found myself walking through a neighborhood called the Tenderloin. All the storefront windows had bars on them. There was a man on one street yelling at passersby, trying to goad them into a fight, and homeless people were openly doing hard drugs on the sidewalk. Great. Welcome to San Francisco, by the way. But honestly, I wasn't that scared. I was from Brooklyn. By the way, I'm from Brooklyn. And I truly believed I knew how to carry myself well enough not to be messed with. And due to the sheer force of my confidence, nobody messed with me. It also possibly doesn't hurt to be 6'3", says Dante. He's right! I'm no (laughs) 6'3". People aren't looking at me going, look at that big guy! No. As you know, I'm a law professor, and I look every bit the nerdy part of it. Horn-rimmed glasses and all! Dante goes on to say, I eventually found myself... I'm sorry, I just read that to you. It goes on to say, in fact, the only time I felt fear during the entire night was at the very end of the walk as I stared hopelessly at the keypad outside my family friend's apartment building. My host had texted me the code so that I could let myself in, but there were no instructions, so I was just standing there with my suitcase and randomly pressing different buttons. I still wasn't worried about being bothered in this neighborhood. Even at 1 a.m., it was very quiet, and I hadn't seen anybody on the streets. It was also obvious that this was an affluent neighborhood with luxury cars and driveways and spacious balconies for the apartments. I kept trying the code, getting increasingly hopeless about my chances of getting in without waking up my kind family friend. So far, it makes sense to me. I had been standing outside the apartment for about 10 minutes when a police cruiser slowly rolled down the empty block. I figured it must be heading somewhere else, but no, it pulled over right in front of me. But no, it pulled over right in front of me. For years, I'd been aware of the fear I caused as a young black man. I had seen people cross the street to avoid me. I had been followed around stores, yet I could still hardly believe someone thought that I was trying to break into a home. But the truth was obvious. Somebody had called the police on me. Zach, did we got that heavy music? Dun, 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 dun. Right? Somebody had called. It's 1 a.m.? He's standing in front of a building for 10 minutes messing with a keypad that he can't get into. And someone had the audacity to call the police. You're calling the police. What's up with that? I knew I had to get into the apartment, says Dante. I turned back to the door and suddenly I realized that I hadn't been hitting the, the pound key. I frantically and correctly typed in the door code so fast that the cops didn't even have a chance to step out of the car to question me. My fear in that moment meant that I wasn't even going to give them a chance. That fear I felt is not unique. That lecture I got from my father and cousins has been given to countless young black people. We're taught to fear the people meant to protect us because the absolute worst case scenario has happened too many times. This reality cannot continue. We shouldn't need to feel that fear. That's the end of the story. Wait, what? That's the end of the story. So let's go through it. Here is what the police did wrong, I guess. At 1 o'clock in the morning, there's a guy messing with a keypad, can't get in. By the way, 
Yes, he happens to be a black guy. But ask yourself as we go through this narration, does this sound like a race-based activity on the part of the cops? Imagine if this were a white guy or an Asian guy or an Hispanic guy or anything else. One o'clock in the morning, messing with a keypad, you know, punching. I don't mean messing like with a crowbar. I don't mean anything nefarious. But if you're punching in a keypad, it doesn't take 10 minutes to punch in a keypad if it's your keypad. Either it works or it don't. Doing it the 18th time doesn't change anything. I'm going to give you my thoughts on this, my final thoughts on this, after we come back from this break. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this glorious holiday weekend. We're looking forward to more balmy weather. And we are now discussing this opinion piece written by Bill de Blasio's son, Dante de Blasio, in USA Today. In which he described, and I relayed to you, how he was visiting friends in San Francisco, and he went to the apartment building, has a keypad out front, one o'clock in the morning, and he can't get the keys right to get into the building. So be it. Not a problem. These things happen. Ten minutes go by. He's standing in front. Of this building, punching on a keypad, the street is barren because it's 1 a.m. in the morning after all, and a police cruiser rolls up on him. Say what? A police cruiser rolls up on him, and then he figured out how to get inside and went inside. And you're thinking to yourself, the horror, the horror, wait, what? Am I missing part of this story? Where's the... Oh, the cops called them bad names and racial epitaphs, right? No. Oh, the cops hassled him, right, when they came up? No. The cops showed up because somebody at 1 a.m. saw this person loitering outside a building, and I don't mean that in a negative way. He's hanging out outside a building at 1 o'clock in the morning. When somebody saw him, and said, no. Either the guy belongs in the building, and if so, he should be able to get in within 10 minutes, or he doesn't belong in the building, and he's messing around with the keypad, maybe trying to figure out the the one of 10,000 combinations that's going to get him in. So what happens? So when the cops roll up, Dante figures it out. Okay, good. And he goes in the building. So did the person that called the cops do something wrong? No. No. I am confident the same thing would have happened, regardless of race, at 1 o'clock in the morning on a barren street with somebody punching into a keypad. But you see, the left can't let it go. Everything's got to implicate race. Well, because they throw out that racist card. You're racist. That's it. You're racist. They keep throwing it out. Right? So the cops didn't do anything wrong. Did, the, the, excuse me, the person who called in didn't do anything wrong, observed something, said, hey, let me tell the cops. 
What did the cops do? They showed up. They showed up. Now, is showing up something wrong? No. Clearly, nothing wrong. So what else? I want you to think about this. And I'm going to give you my final thoughts on this when we come back from this upcoming news break. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. And as you likely know at this point, this is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. Let me mention, by the way, Kim Hammer has the senator, state senator Kim Hammer, who I worked with closely uh, during the past legislative session due to his outstanding conservative values, has a radio show Saturday morning on this station. Uh, He'll be talking tomorrow on the issue of pharmacy cost and the role that prescription benefits managers play in your drug costs. Uh, Kim will have three guests on the show who are proficient in the subject matter, uh, and he's generally on the radio on this station Saturdays from noon to one. So uh, tune in. Listen to Kim talking noon to one on Saturdays on Arkansas Issues. So we come back to this opinion piece by Dante de Blasio, the son of Bill de Blah Blah Blasio. We talked about how he, at one one o'clock in the morning, was on uh, the street in a San Francisco neighborhood, unable to get into an apartment of a family friend due to his inability to get the code right on the keypad. So he was out front punching the keypad for 10 minutes at 1 a.m. in a barren street, on a barren street. Someone called the cops. We've already discussed. That's perfectly appropriate. Not to say he was a criminal, to say, hey, maybe you go check this guy out to see if he's messing around. Or, or maybe he needs some help. When you call the cops, it's not only because someone may be doing criminal activity. It may be because someone needs some help. We don't know that the person that called the cops said, there's someone messing around. The person who called the cops could have said, there's someone in need of assistance. But that's not in the article, is it? When the cops pulled up, Dante got into the house quickly so he didn't interact with them. But he suggests that that interaction would not have been good. How does he know that the cops weren't going to pull up and say, can we help you? Can we help you? He doesn't know that. But that's presumed away in this article. That's not a possibility. And then the final point, which I think is an important one, and I'm going to discuss for a couple of minutes. He said, Dante did, that he felt fear. I believe him. That's not a lie. That's not hyperbole. That's not made up. He felt fear. And he goes on to say, he shouldn't have to feel fear. I agree. I agree. So where's that fear come from? Now, some of it, some of it comes from The history. But there's this thing about the word history. It means it's backwards looking. 
It means it doesn't necessarily reflect events of today or even yesterday. So this notion that there are a bunch of racist cops running around looking to treat poorly people of color is not, in my view, reflective of the current state of affairs. By the way, in San Francisco, you think New York is left of center? Go out to the National, uh, uh, um, no, the uh, Socialist Republic of San Francisco. They're as left as it gets. So the notion that he was justified, that's the question here, in feeling the fear that he absolutely felt from a bunch of San Francisco cops that he never interacted with that could have been asking him, Do you need some help? That's the issue to be contemplated. Moreover, if the fear comes from history, where else does the fear come from? It comes from the constant invocation by the left that the cops are racist. Not only the cops, by the way. The left can't stop calling people racist. You think when Hillary called half of America deplorable, she wasn't calling a good portion, maybe all of them, racist? The left can't help maligning Americans. So if Dante is being taught by his over-the-top leftist father how bad the cops are, Mind you, I don't know if you all saw it, but when de Blasio, shortly after he got elected in New York and a cop was shot and he was speaking to the cops, they turned their backs on him. And he was livid. How dare they turn their backs on me? How dare they exercise their First Amendment rights? How dare they not support me? That's how these leftist autocrats are. And so it's the attitude of the leftists constantly saying the cops are evil, the cops are racist. And then Dante says, well, I was afraid because a cop approached me. I get it. I think he was afraid. I don't think he should have been afraid. I think he should have done what his dad aptly told him when he was approached by the cops if he had stayed outside. Now, there's a good chance they would have come up and said, can you use our assistance? I remember when we were young, I was young. I say we because I've got a, 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 a sibling my age, twin sister. That I was, my, my family were traveling and sure enough, as was often the case before with key fobs and everything, uh, my dad had locked the keys in the car. So he's, I think he got a wire hanger from somebody else in the parking lot and he's trying to open, you remember that's when they had the little, I don't know what you call them, plugs that you could pull up with the, with the wire hanger. You stick it through the rubber, you try to pull it up. Everybody is uh, flying Walinda then, you know, doing the acrobatics, trying to open the car. And a cop showed up, and you know what he said? Do you need some help? Yeah, we do. Took out a Slim Jim, opened the door. 
asked for my dad's ID to confirm that he owned the car he was pulling the thing up from. Nobody took issue with that. Cop was very friendly. Well, you know, your dad is white. Yeah, I know my dad's white. By the way, Dante's dad is white, but Dante's not. Fair enough. Fair enough. But can we at, at least allow for the possibility that, that when the cops came pursuant to a legitimate phone call from some citizen about this person stuck outside on the street at 1 a.m. in San Francisco, when those San Francisco cops showed up, they might have been offering help. And that Dante's fear, as real as it was to him, may not have been justified at all. Can we at least account for that possibility? I'm looking in the paper, folks. I got it in front of me. It ain't printed anywhere. I'm trying to read between the lines. It's not there either. There's no possibility that anybody involved in this story except Dante was acting with ill motives, motives driven by racism. When I was doing a Fulbright in Poland, I went to Auschwitz. We'll talk a little about that later, by the way. How that brilliant bartender turned congresswoman is an expert on what is a concentration camp. Really? Really? You know, I don't take advice from bartenders on what drink to get. Oh, well, Rob, you're not accounting for the fact that she was elected. Not by me, she wasn't. I don't live in that district. I don't know, was she Brooklyn or the Bronx? I think she's in the Bronx. Part of New York. Some liberal section of, of, of New York. I didn't elect her. No, sir. But can we at least envision the possibility that everything that happened in that story that Dante de Blasio describes was motivated by good behavior. And that aspect could have been discussed. I get that it's USA Today. I get that a column in USA Today is only slightly longer than my eyebrow hairs. I get that. But nowhere, no editor envisioned the possibility That just because Dante was afraid doesn't mean there was a boogeyman in the closet. Just because I have to turn on the nightlight for my four-year-old, I don't have a four-year-old, but nonetheless, you take my point, doesn't mean there are monsters hiding under the bed. People can be cruel. People can be bad. But here's the thing. They can be kind and they can be good. Now, if the story is, I've been so indoctrinated by the left that I'm unable to see the good in anyone, I see your point. But that doesn't seem to be the tenor of the article. We should change the title. I can see no good in people. Okay, I get it. You can see no good in people. 
And by the way, I think that Dante's father, Bill de blah, blah, Blasio, and all the other leftists on those stages during the debates that we saw a couple of weeks ago have that attitude. Remember what Hillary said. Half the country is deplorable. Please vote for me. Wait, what? Half the country is deplorable. Please vote for me. Think about that. And I'm going to expand. I'm going to move away from the Dante article. And we're going to expand upon that point when we come back from this break. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. And I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. We're talking about how the left unfortunately, only sees the worst in people and how that infects their politics. Did you see that there was a New York Times tweet during this July 4th wonderful weekend in which a New York Times literally said, this is not the greatest nation in the world. We're just okay. We're just okay. It's remarkable how the attitude of the left is everybody else is somehow better than we are. We're mediocre. We should bow our heads in shame. It's factually unsupportable that we're just okay. I've told the story on Dave's show many a time that my father survived Nazi occupation and Stalinist rule during World War II. He spent most of the war after spending a winter in Siberia in a camp uh, in Kazakhstan. And after the war, he went back to Poland where he was from as required by law, international law. Everybody, all displaced persons had to go back to their original countries. But then his father took his family to Germany. Now think about that. Germany. I realize the Nazis were defeated. But would you want to go to Germany after World War II? But yet my grandfather took my father and his family to Germany. And here's why. Because that's where the Americans were. And they knew and they said, if you want to live, you go where the Americans are. So back then, this country was the greatest country in the world. And the greatest country in history. What, What country was better? Kaepernick thinks this country was awful in 1776 or so. Because there was the awful component of slavery, do you think the rest of the world was a better place than what we were in 1776, but the rest of the world today? I'm going to come back to that topic, by the way. Then my father went as part of the Zionist movement to Israel, fought in the War of Independence, and then he and my mother, my mother was born in Israel, shortly before uh, um, the war, because her parents fled Germany shortly before the war. So they survived the war by just getting out of Germany in time. And my parents came to the United States. And they genuinely believed 
This is the greatest country in the world. Now, here's some comparison that you can do. Take a look at any country. You pick it. You think there's a better country out there? You pick it. Ecuador, Sweden, Russia, Somalia. I don't know. You tell me. Because I think this is the greatest country in the world today and in the history of mankind. Now, that's a bit of a trick in the sense that we're always getting better, right? So, wow, Rob, you're rather lucky, aren't you? You happen to live in the country at the very moment that it's the greatest in all time. No, tomorrow it's going to be greater than today. And the day after that, even greater than. We are progressing forward every day. That's why it's the greatest country in the world. I didn't vote for Obama. I didn't like his leftist ideology. But do you not think that this country was better in its ability to demonstrate that it would elect a black man president twice, twice, than it was before it had done so, than it was in the 50s when racism was dramatic, open, when there was segregation in restaurants and public accommodations? Yeah, I think, I think when, when Obama was elected, this country was better than it was when there was before the civil rights movement. Yeah. That doesn't mean I don't think there were values of the 50s that were positive, like getting married before you have kids, not doing drugs, working hard. And I think we've lost some of those values. But we also lost racism. Not entirely. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But it's not a character of this country. No, it is not. I'm sorry if you believe that. Then you must have tuned into the wrong radio station. So, yes, this country is always getting better. Now, I would have preferred to elect a conservative. Although I remember when Mitt Romney won, uh, uh, ran against Obama. Was that guy a robot? You know, like was he was he actually alive? I know he's in the Senate now, and I see him you know, like his joints squeak because they haven't put the WD forty on those metal joints of his. That guy is barely alive. Am I right? Okay. Anyway, I digress. But the left is stuck in this notion that we're not a great country, that we're bad. Oh, so I started to give you the comparison. Take any country you want. Look at the amount of immigration to that country from the United States. Look at the amount of immigration from that country to the United States. And the interest therein, meaning we may have quotas, they may have quotas. How many people from that country, whatever country it is, want to come to the United States? And how many people from the United States want to move to that country? And remember, United States has 335, 330 million people. So there's a lot more people that can leave here than can come here unless you're coming from China or India. But most countries have far smaller populations. Yet far more people want to come from those countries to the United States than the other way around. Do you think more Frenchmen, and I like France, And I like the French people and the French government. And I'm not saying I agree with them. They're kind of lefty. But do you think that more French people want to come to this country or more Americans want to move to France? 
It's the former. It's the former. And that doesn't mean that France is a bad country, by the way. It's a perfectly nice country. I've spent time in France. It's a pretty country. They have wonderful culture. The food is terrific. The people can be very nice, notwithstanding the kind of stories about traveling in France. That's generally not true. I mean, I, I would think there are some exceptions. There's a mix of ability to speak English amongst, amongst Frenchmen, and sometimes Americans are off-put by that, but they don't have to learn English if they don't want to learn English. They're very accommodating. But do you think more Frenchmen want to come here? Or more Americans want to move to France? We know the answer. And why? Why? Because this is the greatest country in the history of the world. Period. By the way, if, it, if I were a Frenchman and I lived in France, I would stay in France, but I would admire America for what it is. I would understand America for what it is. That's what I would do. So, when the left continues to downplay how wonderful this country is, you decide, do I want that person representing me? If you were hiring a lawyer... Do you want the guy to go into court or the girl to go into court and say, my client, my client's so-so. My client's kind of guilty. My client's mediocre. Or do you want your president to go in and say, this is the greatest country in the history of mankind. And if that's what you want, you've got no choice. You've got no choice. You have to vote. Republican. See you after the break. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this glorious holiday weekend. We have with us Lieutenant Governor Tim Griffin's Chief of Staff, David Ray. David, it's an honor to have you on with us today. How are you doing? Hey, Rob. I am great. I had a great Fourth of July and ready for a weekend coming up. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's it's really our pleasure. Why don't we dive right into it? Why don't you tell us, you know, there's been so much going on in this state. We've had the floods and everything. And I know I've been seeing Tim in the news and also on the Twitter. He's been going around this state really kind of trying to help correct this problem that we had, you know, this awful flooding. Can you tell us what, what he's been involved in? Yeah, Rob. So as you know, uh, you know the lieutenant governor well. Um, you know he moves 100 miles a minute and rarely slows down. Um, That's for sure. In fact, he's got he's got two weeks of army duty coming up at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. So um, he'll be he'll be away from the state for a little bit, fulfilling his military obligation. But um, good for him. These past few weeks have been have been very busy. You know, we had the historic flooding. Um, up and down the Arkansas River Valley and into the Delta. The lieutenant governor was around the state, everywhere from, from Fort Smith down to Pine Bluff, touring um, some, of those, some of those flood areas. We had a roundtable in um, Yale County with the Farm Bureau 
at the beginning of this week to meet with some of the farmers who had been personally affected uh, by some of that flooding devastation. And it was it was just really uh, enlightening to hear their perspectives and the importance of um, communication and cooperation between all levels of government. You know, the the local state and federal components to the disaster response there. Um, and as you know, all of those, um, all of those components are very important. Um, and he was down in Crossit earlier this week as well. Uh, as a lot of your listeners have probably seen in the news, Georgia Pacific made an announcement. They were, um, closing down, um, a really big facility there in Crossit, about 500 workers affected by that announcement. So meeting with workers down there and economic development officials uh, in that in that southeast Arkansas region, helping them figure out what's going to come next for their community and, and how they can rebound as well. So it's been a busy couple of weeks. One of the things that I admire about the lieutenant governor, and I think he has a lot of similarity to the president in this regard, is his keen understanding that we don't need politicians who give us highfalutin talk or are more interested in foreign state dinners than they are in the everyday lives of Arkansans. And the number one thing to Arkansans is the ability to find work. Everything flows from the ability to find work. And if government can facilitate that, not create it, Private industry creates work, but they can facilitate it. They can create an environment hospitable to work or antithetical to work. And I so admire how the lieutenant governor not only understands this, but this seems to me drive virtually everything he does. He's worried about the health, the welfare, and the ability of Arkansans to work. What? Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right, Rob. Work is is critical. It's important that we promote it in all aspects of state government, from education to workforce development to um, having a welfare or, or a work component to our welfare programs. And And you're right that President Trump is leading the way. The tax cuts have unquestionably uh, jump-started a, an extremely strong economy. You saw the job numbers come out uh, this morning f- uh, for the previous month were extremely strong. And um, we were along the same line a couple of weeks ago. Lieutenant Governor was very honored to host President Trump's Secretary of Labor uh, here in Little Rock, Secretary Alexander Acosta. And uh, we had a couple of great events, one in, uh, in Little Rock at the state chamber promoting USMCA, which is the, um, the, the agreement that will hopefully pass the Congress that would modernize uh, the 25-year-old NAFTA agreement. There's a lot of great things in the USMCA that will benefit Arkansas and the country as a whole. Um, we talked a lot about workforce development which if you talk to governors and lieutenant governors and CEOs around the country, you, you hear this almost unanimously that workforce development is the most um, under, uh, underappreciated and uh, challenge and That's issue right. facing most states. That's right. You know, workforce development is the intersection between education and jobs. Exactly. And 
you know, back when in 2008, 2009, when the economy was in the tank, um, the challenge facing the economy was how are we going to find jobs for workers? Now we're in the an in, in inverse position. Now our challenge is how are we going to find workers for the jobs? Mm-hmm. And so workforce development becomes an, incredi- an incredibly um, important component to that. And uh, the lieutenant governor and Secretary Acosta spent a lot of time talking about the importance of things like apprenticeships uh, and, and how that fits into workforce development. And also, um, they talked a little bit about the need to reform occupational licensing laws and um, how our system of our patchwork system of occupational licensing laws around the country um, can sometimes um, unintentionally prohibit worker mobility and um, artificially depress uh, employment. Yeah, let me let me uh, build on that, if I may, David, because it's such an important point. Look, if you become a doctor, you've got to be licensed as a doctor. You've got to go to medical school. You've got to take your boards. You've got to be licensed as a doctor. We all understand that, right? Because we don't want a guy showing up with a rusty old pocket knife and performing surgery in his backyard. But this notion has become so extended and attenuated that I think you have to study something like for a year to be a barber. Now, when you break that down and you look, well, okay, you know, you, you got to make sure that they're clean their blades and this kind of thing. The, the safety aspect of it is a terribly small component. And the rest is, well, they teach them how to cut your hair this way or that way. Well, maybe you don't need to learn how to cut all the hair different ways. Meaning I can decide if I like how my barber cuts hair. I can decide if I want to go to a barber who only cuts men's hair because he's not trained in women's hair. And what has happened is big industry has captured, so to speak, that's kind of the, the, uh, the literature term for it, has captured these regulatory agencies and has piled on requirements that don't serve the consumer at all. And so, as you know, the president is trying to clean this up. Secretary Acosta is trying to clean this up. And as I understand it, the lieutenant governor in state is trying to clean this up. So I think yeah, and is, let me give you ahead. let me give you just a couple of quick examples. Please. You know, Lieutenant Governor Griffin spoke um, not too long ago at a graduation ceremony for inmates that were uh, had gone through a faith based re- prison rehabilitation program mm-hmm. while they were serving their time. They were about to get out, and uh, he was talking to one of these gentlemen that was getting out of the program that was in prison, and he said. You know, sir, what are you what are you looking forward to doing when you get out? And he said, I want to go work as a barber. Mm-hmm. And um, the lieutenant governor said, well, that's awesome. I, I hope you go do it. And he said, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to. And he said, why? Why not? And the, the gentleman's response was that he had been a barber before he was incarcerated in Massachusetts. But he could not be a barber in Arkansas because Arkansas required an additional 500 clock hours of training. That's amazing. Well, you know, that makes no sense. If you are if you can cut hair in Massachusetts, you ought to be able to cut hair in Arkansas. There's no uh, epidemic of bad haircuts in Massachusetts that I'm aware of. And uh, it's just it's it's an ex- insane example. Here, here's another thing that most folks may not be aware of. You can become an, a licensed EMT, an emergency management or emergency uh, medical technician. 
in the state of Arkansas in about one month's time. It takes you a, almost a full year's worth of training to become a barber. That's crazy. So you can literally hold, hold someone's life in your hands in the back of an ambulance in one month's training, but it takes you a year to be able to give somebody a crew cut. And it strikes me. I think mo- uh, David, it's I think right. most pe- that strikes most people as as uh, as out of whack. Yeah, we we've got a word in in law school for that. It's called bonkers. I mean, that's just <laughs> that's just that's a. But it strikes me that this is an example of where some industry, some barber industry, maybe some companies that uh, provide the teaching services or something, got involved in politics at some point way back when. Who knows? And they said, oh, you really need to add this requirement. You really need to add that requirement. So these barber teaching schools are getting rich and nobody else is. People can't go to work. People have to pay more for their haircuts. It's it's a real intrusion on the marketplace. You know, the liberals. Well, and got- it also limits it also limits worker mobility mm-hmm. because we have a we have a 50 state patchwork system and different states have different requirements for various occupations but take for example and and fortunately our legislature in arkansas has worked to address this Mm -hmm. in some ways but take for example the the instance of military spouses so uh, a person who is in the military will be from time to time transferred and you know their spouse will move with them well oftentimes you know military households are two income households so sure let's just you take the hypothetical example of a husband serving in the military and the wife might be a teacher. Okay. Well, that, that the, the spouse may be licensed to teach in Georgia, but if they're transferred to Arkansas, um, their license may not necessarily transfer. So that's a big problem when you're talking about a family that depends on a two income uh, arrangement to make ends meet. And uh, we've got to work to to better address those situations because we want people to be mobile. We want that. That's what that's one of the things that help leads to a dynamic economy is when we have worker mobility and people can move to the places that have the most attractive quality of life, that have the most uh, the 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 best schools, the best um tax laws, the best what, whatever it is that, that you value as an individual. Um, so it's definitely something that we have to take a better look at and make sure that our laws make sense. Yeah, and we need to encourage people to move to this state. So if we can say to them, listen, if you're licensed in Massachusetts or North Carolina, uh, we're going to take a look at that licensing scheme and probably approve it. And then, by the way, and then thereafter, your license here, fill out some paperwork, whatever the case may be, because we don't need to put this tax on our citizens that is just needless bureaucracy. David, hold with me if you don't mind. We're going to go to a quick commercial break and then we'll come back. This is a Dave Ellswick show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today. And we are talking with David Ray, the chief of staff for the lieutenant governor here in Arkansas. David, one of the things that I really admire about the lieutenant governor is that if you have a conversation with him, and by the way, if if you're down at the Capitol during the session or you're out at the bookstore and you run into the lieutenant governor, because I've seen this happen, and you walk up to him and you say, hi, hi, lieutenant governor, hi, Tim, call him Tim, hi, Tim, let me give you my opinion. You know what he says? He says, let's have it. 
Let's have it. Because he's not too big for his britches. I, I'm, I'm tired of these politicians that think once they get elected, they've been elected king. But that isn't even the point I want to bring up. Here's what I most admire about the lieutenant governor. If you ask him, don't you want to do, and then you give him a list of other things you want government to do. His response will be, as long as we can do it with the money that we already collect. Meaning, Arkansans and Americans pay more than enough in taxes already. So the notion that we have this wish list of rainbows and unicorns and we want to never stop collecting tax dollars and spend it on this wish list is make-believe. And the lieutenant governor recognizes that and says, there are a lot of good things. We got to pick the most important and we got to do it within the budget we already have. Can you can you comment on that? Yeah, Rob. Well, you're you're right on both points. Number one, I I also admire that the lieutenant governor is is without a doubt the most accessible politician that I have I have ever worked for or mm-hmm. even known. Uh, he's the only statewide elected official in any state I've ever met that gives out that routinely gives out his personal cell phone number at practically every public speech he gives. Mm-hmm. Um, and folks that do come down to the Capitol are welcome to stop by our office anytime and chat, share their thoughts on on issues and tour our office. The second thing I think you're, you're totally right about is his emphasis on keeping taxes low, keeping spending under control. Um, look, I mean, Arkansas has some of the highest taxes of any state in the southeast. We've made tremendous progress in in reducing our personal income tax rates, but we still have a long way to go um, in in order to uh, be competitive with states like Texas and Tennessee, for example, who border us and have zero income tax uh, that they charge. We you know we also have the third highest sales tax rate when you combine state and local sales tax of any state in the entire country, not Amazing. just in the southeast. Amazing. Of any state in the country. And um, so we've, we've got a long way to go um, in terms of truly being competitive from a tax perspective, but we have made some significant progress in that regard. Um, and you're right. Government governs best when it focuses on the core functions of government, the core responsibilities of government, you know, that's why, you know, you saw the Lieutenant governor write an op-ed in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette recently on the topic of literacy. Mm -hmm. That is a foundational building block of education. I mean, if you, uh, if, if we fail to teach reading to children, not much else in education matters because, Reading benefits imagination, vocabulary, and it, it truly unlocks the door to all other subjects. And that's why it's very – and look, as, a, as the parent of a two-year-old, it is very, very disconcerting to me that Arkansas – only 41 percent of Arkansas third graders, um, you know, meet the readiness and reading benchmark on the ACT Aspire <laughs> test. <laughs> So we've got a lot of work to do right. in, in that regard as a state. And, um, you know, when government focuses on the core responsibilities, we, we, we govern best. Indeed. You know, it reminds me, I don't know if you recall, in the 80s, there was the RoboCop movie series. In the first RoboCop, he had like three programs, uh, protect people, protect himself, and protect property. And then in the second movie, 
they gave him like 47 commands and they all conflicted with each other and he broke down. And it was kind of a commentary through science fiction on government. And I think it's a wonderful commentary. And it reflects exactly what you're saying. If you do too much, you do none of it well. Focus on the core functions of government. Focus on our children. I so admire that the lieutenant governor came back to the state after he was a congressman to stay in state and serve the people of Arkansas for what will now be eight years as lieutenant governor. And by the way, I know that you're the apolitical side, but I'm going to say it. And I hope another eight years as governor. So it's really remarkable that the the lieutenant governor's focus is, you know, maybe it's a reflection of what you said earlier. Maybe it's a reflection of the fact that he's in the military. You know, the military parades aside are not flashy. They get the job done. And that's how I, I view the lieutenant governor. He's not flashy. Like we said, he's approachable. He's common sense. He works within the budget of Arkansans, not the budget of government. That's the approach that I think every Arkansan should want and does want. We're going to go to another well, break. Oh, go ahead, David. But let me just yeah, warn no, you in advance. You're we're going to go to a break, Bob. and then we're going to we're going to bring you back if you can stay for another few minutes uh, for the next segment, and then then we'll let you get back to your family if that's okay. Sounds great. Thanks, Ter- Rob. Terrific. So, but go ahead. What, you know, finish your thought. You'll hear the music start to pipe in. I'll give you a little flag on that. Finish your thought on sort of this, the grounded nature of the lieutenant governor in his view of governance. Well, I was just going to say, you're, you're very kind to say all that. Um, look, it, the lieutenant governor is enjoying his role where he can serve the state as lieutenant governor and also serve the nation uh, in his capacity Indeed. as a uh, hold, just, just hold that thought, David. Hold that thought. We'll be back. All right. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this glorious holiday weekend. With us on the on the phone is David Ray, Chief of Staff for the Lieutenant Governor Tim Griffin. Uh, David, uh, we got cut off a little bit by the commercial. Uh, pick up where you left off, talking about the lieutenant governor's commitment to the bread and butter issues of Arkansans and his kind of workaday work ethic. That is, he's not flashy, he's not showy, but he gets it done. It's not even Buddy gets it done, Andy gets it done. Well, Rob, in the last segment, you were talking about how we were talking about how the gover- government that focuses on its core responsibilities governs the best and that's look the lieutenant governor has been laser focused on this transformation advisory board that governor hutchinson put him on because we look over decades in state government it has grown like kudzu and has expand look back in the we had a transformation under governor bumpers where reor the state state agencies were reworked down into i think um 15 or 17 state agencies at the time, and then that number ballooned up to 42 before this most recent um, reorg that was passed during the last legislative session. So we've got to find ways to streamline to make it deliver better services to the taxpayers at less cost to the taxpayers, um, which is 
sort of a concept that not a lot of people are familiar with. Most people are here a lot of times about how we're going to tax you less, but you're going to get fewer services, or how we're going to tax you more and you're going to get more services. But transformation is really about delivering better services at lower cost to the taxpayer, and you do that by innovating, by reforming, um, and by leveraging things like technology so that taxpayers get better results. What I've always been impressed about from the lieutenant governor is his commitment to transparency, his commitment to the Freedom of Information Act. I remember him lobbying to make sure that our Freedom of Information Act does not get gutted. And what's critical about this is here's an elected official who says, I want government to be responsible. I want government to have oversight. I want government to to be transparent to the people that pay for it. And the lieutenant governor was all over that. And I'm always skeptical when you hear government bureaucrats say the opposite. I will not say who, David, but I read in the paper recently that some local government official wants to tell people they can't come to public meetings for three months going forward if they are disruptive in one meeting. You shouldn't be disruptive in any meeting. But this government official thinks it's within his power. It's not, by the way, to unilaterally kick out citizens going forward from public meetings. I I tell you that simply as an example of the wrong kind of mindset for government officials. And what I've observed is that Tim Griffin, the lieutenant governor, has exactly the opposite mindset. Come talk to me. Come visit with me. Stop me at the bookstore and I'll talk to you. And I represent you. I work for you. I'm tired of hearing government officials act in a way that's contrary to that. Now that I've gone on a bit, please tell me your thoughts on it. Well, no, you're you're right. Look, nobody should be disorderly at public meetings, but let's be very clear. Citizens do not work for the government. Government works for the citizens. And when folks get that paradigm switched around, that's when we have problems. And look, criticizing the government is one of our most fundamental rights as Americans. Um, I mean, we just celebrated our nation's birthday, and one of the one of the primary rights that our founders enshrined in our Constitution is the is the ability to speak freely, to enjoy freedom of speech, to peaceably assemble, to criticize the government, um, and and those are those are rights that that we hold sacred as Americans, and part of that right is is being straightforward with with the people um you know you mentioned freedom of information act and um look citizens arkansas thankfully has a strong freedom of information act i think that's one of the things that we're proud of as a state and um you know we ought to keep it that way that's right that's exactly right and these attempts you you know what's what i find comical is when folks who are not in government are all about transparency. And once they get in government, that attitude changes. Whenever you see an attitude change upon election, that's when you start to say, wait, wait, wait a second. What's going on here? And what I think is the beauty of the lieutenant governor's approach to being a public servant is 
It's never changed. I'm not saying he hasn't come up with new ideas. He hasn't developed. He hasn't uh, uh, had an issue that he's gotten new insight into. But his approach to government never changes because his approach to government is exactly like you say it is. I work for you. How can I best serve you? That's it. That's it. It's not That's complicated. Right. And, and transparency transparency is for government. Privacy is for citizens. It's exactly. not the other way around. Exactly. And so so many government officials fail to recognize that fact. It's really it's really a little scary. Oh, trust us. Guess what? I don't trust you. I remember once, David, I'll tell you a short story. I was representing a friend in a real estate deal, and I put all these caveats in the transaction. And the other side said, well, you know, what are you expecting to happen? I'm a little bit insulted. I said, I expect nothing to happen. I expect that I've wasted my time. But my job is to represent my client in case something goes wrong. And it's that approach to government that is critical. That is, we hope for the best, but we, through transparency, observe what goes on. Because if you don't observe it, something's going to go wrong. It's much like you say. Yeah. It's like kudzu. It's going to it's gonna, uh, game up the works if you don't constantly monitor it. Go ahead, David. No, absolutely. I was just going to say it sounds like you picked up a thing or two in law school. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe a tiny bit. Listen, David, I really so appreciate you taking this time to talk to us here on the Dave Ellswick Show, uh, particularly when I'm filling in for Dave. You don't even get the primary. So notwithstanding that you, you got the B team on the Dave Ellswick Show, we really appreciate you. We really appreciate the great work that you're doing, and we really appreciate the great work that the lieutenant governor is doing. And so wish him our best, and we look forward to talking to the two of you in the future again. Will do. Thanks for having me. Bob. Thanks, David. Why don't we take a break now, and then we'll come back. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this July 4th holiday weekend. Welcome back. We had a very nice talk with David Ray, the chief of staff for the lieutenant governor. As you all likely know, if you've ever listened to the Dave Ellswick Show in the last, oh, five years, I'm a big fan of the lieutenant governor because I think he's doing a fantastic job. I think he has the right attitude. Uh, He's got boots on the ground. Uh, and, and in some respects, that applies in two ways, meaning he's here in Arkansas, he's getting it done, and he's in the military. And I've got to admire someone who's in the military. He's even got a combat action badge uh, for being in combat zone uh, in Iraq. So uh, really, I'm not saying that uh, he is, uh, walks on water, but maybe he skims across it a little bit. Because he is really a remarkable public servant, and we're lucky to have him, and we'll be lucky when he runs for and wins uh, the governorship. Let's uh, let's turn a little bit to national politics for the next oh, almost ten minutes or so. Uh, by the way, uh, at the top of the hour at four o'clock, we're going to have my colleague uh, Josh Silverstein, law professor, over at the UALR Bowen School of Law. His opinions as mine are both hours and hours alone and do not necessarily represent those of the law school or UALR in general. 
Uh, so Josh is going to be joining us at the four o'clock hour, and we're going to be talking about this lawsuit that's going on against the University of Arkansas. Uh, and it's really interesting. Josh is an expert on that. Josh and I have done some work on it, and uh, I dare put my name or pronoun in that sentence because Josh is kind enough to put my name on various things that we work on when he does 90% of the work and I do 10. Uh, and by 10, I mean seven or five. So in any event, I'm so thankful for his kindness in that regard, but he really is such a uh, expert when it comes to so many things in higher education. And uh, he's going to give us some good insight uh, into this lawsuit. And what's further interesting about it, folks, is, as you may know, because Dave has had Josh on uh, various times, Josh is a liberal. And so you're going to hear the perspective of a liberal. You have been getting an earful of perspective from a conservative. Yet we agree on these issues that we are going to be talking about because they're not left or right. They're right and wrong. And we are both on the right side of this issue. But before we get to that, let's have a little fun with national politics. We've talked quite a bit about local politics, and I think that's a good thing. This is a local politics show, after all. But let's talk a little bit about national politics, because I really think it's amazing how the Democrats are tripping over themselves uh, to get more left. Well, ask Josh about this. He's a Democrat. He's undoubtedly going to vote for a Democrat. He voted for a Democrat uh, in the last election. I'm not sure he's ever voted for a Republican presidential election. Uh, for uh, Once, uh, he, Josh has already entered the studio, told me he once voted for a Republican. Um, but uh, so we'll, we'll see who he supports. I, I have an inkling based on prior conversations. But I, I don't know if you've seen Joe Biden was doing some press this morning he is 76 years old, I think. Is that right, Josh? Yeah, 76 year old. He doesn't look a day over 75 and three quarters, I assure you, right? I mean, Stumbling Joe does not look a bit over three months younger than his actual age. Man, he was not looking good. And notwithstanding that his skin was pulled tight, I'm not saying how, uh, he, his answers showed every but. Every bit of his age. And I'm not being an ageist here. As we get older, uh, um, some of us are on top of our game. Uh, But we know with age can come a slowing down. And uh, I dare say it looks to me that uh, Joe is slowing down a bit. But let's look at who we have running in this national election uh, for the Dems. We've got Biden. We just talked about him. Sanders, who uh, was ahead of the pack in the beginning and I I don't see how Sanders wins the primary. I really don't see it. And here's why. Because if you want someone who is far left, then you would vote for somebody who's far left and is smarter than Sanders. That's Elizabeth Warren. I'm no fan of Elizabeth Warren. Really, I'm not. But she's the smart version of Bernie Sanders. If you want someone who's more middle of the road, then you're going to vote for Joe Biden. So I think Sanders gets squeezed out between Biden and Warren. Now, fighting for that far left uh, with Warren is going to be Harris. Uh, She uh, made a name for herself, of course, in the last um, 
debate in which she had some very good canned attacks on Joe Biden. By the way, I don't necessarily mean that as a criticism. Joe opened himself up and she took that left hook. Well, good for her. That's called training. Good for her. Now, then she stumbled thereafter because it turns out, well, she's actually not for forced busing. She's for voluntary busing because forced busing was a bad idea then. It's a bad idea now. Uh, And it's one of the reasons, by the way, in the South there's so many private schools is because when we started to see forced busing, parents said, well, yeah, I recognize that the school system is not great uh, for minorities and I would welcome them in the non-minority schools, but why should we be sending uh, non-minorities to what we've now determined are not good schools? And that's, because remember, forced busing worked both ways. It took black students from poor neighborhoods and underfunded schools and sent them to uh, richer white neighborhood schools. That makes some sense, right? And then they took white kids from richer neighborhoods and send them to poor schools. Wait, what? So, what did parents do? They pulled them out of the public schools and sent their kids to private schools. And we, to this day, have a vestige of that system in place. So she was a little bit stumbling on her post-debate answers on those questions. Uh, that's Biden, Sanders, Harris, and Warren. Who's left? Buttigieg, I think, is out. I He's very polished in his speech, but listen to what he says. First of all, it's far left. But it's not as left as Warren and Harris, and it's not as moderate as Biden. I don't think there's enough room in there. So I think Buttigieg is out, and the rest will never make it. O'Rourke, Booker, Klobuchar. By the way, Klobuchar is my favorite amongst the Democrats, and I'm going to talk about her for a moment. Um, Castro and Yang. They're all out. They do not have the numbers. They do not. You say, well, Rob, it's really early. We didn't have the first primer. This is my prediction. They're out. They're just not. This is the Roman Colosseum of campaigns at this point. There are too many candidates in. They're not going to be able to fund it after one or two primaries. And these folks are not going to be able to raise enough money. O'Rourke raised a bunch of money up front because he... Is good looking. That's why, yes. And, well, because he ran against Tom Cruise. Uh, Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, Senator Cruz, not Tom Cruise, uh, but Senator Ted Cruz, and uh, made a bit of a name for himself. But he looks like the, the candidate, he looks like the actor or the, the um, character from the Alien movie just before the alien popped out of the guy's belly. Every time he's up there on stage, he's shaking and convulsing, and I'm just looking at his belly waiting for that monster to pop out. This guy just doesn't have what it takes, and there's no substance to any of his answers, which kind of helps as well, right? Actually having some substance. So I think right now we're down to Biden, Sanders, Harris, and Warren, unless somebody else gets in the race or something big changes. But I wanted to say something about Amy Klobuchar. We were talking in the last segment with the chief of staff for the lieutenant governor, and I said how much I admire the the lieutenant governor because he's approachable. He's down to earth. He's reasonable in the way he speaks. He's reasonable in the way he thinks. He's reasonable in the way he governs. 
And while Amy Klobuchar is a Democrat, and unfortunately, the Democrats have divided between the pretty left and the far left, meaning the moderate left has kind of left the Democratic Party. But in any event, she is amongst those who are more moderate amongst the leftists. And she's moderate in her approach, in her demeanor. Everything about her is moderate. I don't want someone to be a leader who comes in and thinks that they have all of the answers to everything. This is one of the big distinctions between the left and the right. The right wants to leave a lot of issues up to the marketplace, and the left says, we know better. And if I see a Democrat who who seems to say, as my interpretation of Klobuchar seems to say, um, that we don't have all of the answers, but here's what I think we can do. She said that about health care. Right now, all, everybody in the left wants to uh, expand the social socialization or the, the, the social welfare component of health care. It just is what it is. But she's more moderate than many of them in doing so because she says, well, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. It's that sense of humility in government not personal humility. I like personal humility as well. Well, how could you vote for Donald Trump? Listen, it's not the only characteristic, and nobody would call Donald Trump uh, a particularly humble individual. But remember, he was a real estate developer and salesman. His whole life was selling real estate and then being a reality television star. Those roles don't call for humility. It's a little late to ask for that at this point. But his policies often do. And Klobuchar, her personality seems to, and her policies within the leftist paradigm are more humble than many of those on the left. Not as humble as a conservative, but more humble than many on the left. So that's my take on the candidates uh, for which this audience is likely not going to vote. Thank goodness. But it's interesting, nonetheless, to see how it breaks down. I would like to, uh, you know who I think is an entertaining candidate, and I hope will remain on the debate stage as long as possible. What's her name, Williamson? Uh, The woman who's, uh, you know, grasping at those crystals. Uh, My colleague Josh is looking at me like I'm crazy. It's entertaining. It's entertaining to watch her. Oh, she's out there. She is out there in every bit of kookiness. Let's, let's get a little entertainment there. Let's get, as uh, uh, um, Senator Harris said, let's get a bit of a food fight because she's fun to watch. She would be a disaster. She would be a train wreck as a president, but she can't win. So let's keep keeping her up in the polls so we can keep her on that debate stage. They're only going to give her one minute of time. They're not going to give her a lot of time anyway. So don't worry. She's not going to win anything. She's not going to take away any votes from Bernie or from Klobuchar or from Warren. But she's fun to watch. And sometimes we just have to have a little fun. And with that, we're going to go to a commercial break, and then we'll be back with Josh Silverstein. This is a Dave Ellswick show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave during this Independence Day weekend. 
Uh, before we get to our guest, let me remind you again that Senator Kim Hammer now has a Saturday show from noon to one on this station. He's going to have a great conversation this weekend on pharmacy cost and the role of pres- prescription benefits managers. Try to get that out, right? Uh, and uh, he always has great insights. Uh, I'm so glad he's in our Arkansas Senate. He's really a thoughtful thinker, a thoughtful leader, and a, a joy to work with. I worked very close with him uh, during this past session, as did my guest, Josh Silverstein. Josh Silverstein is a professor of law here at the UALR, or it's a U, uh, U, U, UA Little Rock. UA Little Rock, thank you. UA Little Rock, Bowen School of Law, as am I. Uh, we both appear in our personal capacities, and our views uh, don't necessarily represent the views of the institution or anyone therein. Uh, and Josh, welcome uh, to the Dave Ellswick Show. I know you've been on with Dave, and as I said to the chief of staff for the lieutenant governor, unfortunately, you're getting the B team today. But nonetheless, uh, we enjoy your presence here, and I know Dave's audience uh, loves to hear from you. And we're going to talk first about this lawsuit that is going on. So tell me about this lawsuit. And really, I know a bit more than I'm uh, sort of showing at the moment because I want you, of course, to tell Dave's listeners about this lawsuit in which some law, no, not law professors, but professors in general, one of whom is a law professor, are suing the University of Arkansas for, amongst other things, uh, essentially breach of contract. Right. What, what contract is being breached? What What's going on? So the University of Arkansas changed some of the rules that govern how the university functions. The board of trustees changed some of the rules. And okay, okay, wait. Let me interrupt you, if I may, uh, Josh. So what? I mean, uh, rules rules change all the time. Right, right. So for, they changed some of the rules that govern freedom of speech. The ability of professors and even students to speak about, teach about, write about whatever they believe is appropriate for their courses or their research. They changed those rules. Now, that's where the contract part comes in. So when a professor is hired by the university, they're an employee. So they have a contract just like any other employee does. And when they have reached tenure, they get more contract protections. And so what the university did is they changed some of the rules that govern our employment. But once we have our contract, the contract basically says whatever the rules are when you become employed, those are the rules of your contract. Those are the terms of your contract. And so the university can change their rules but not if it's inconsistent with the contract you have as an employee. But wait, Josh, Josh, if I get a job at Walmart, uh, they can they can say, well, tomorrow you need to wear a suit every day to work, and today you couldn't. And they could change. They they could say we're going to pay you less. We're going to pay you more. We can fire you. To, whatever. We can do whatever we want. Isn't that right? I mean, in a large number of businesses and in many industries, employees are what are called at will. They can quit for any reason at all, and the employer can fire you for any reason except a narrow set of forbidden reasons like race, sex, and religion. So in those business relationships, under those employment contracts, 
both sides have tremendous flexibility. But there are a lot of industries, including education and then basically executives in a lot of businesses that have more defined contracts that restrict the responsibilities of both the employer and the employee. And so professors in higher education fall into that second category where there are restrictions on what the employer can do. But, but Josh, here's the thing. I've, I've heard conservatives talk about this all the time. We don't like, say, these conservatives. I'm not amongst them, and I'll share my views in a moment. We don't like that professors actually have these contract rights. They should be like these folks that w- work at Walmart. If the bosses don't like them, they should be able to fire them. Why are you a bunch of entitled, privileged, spoiled, silver spoon-in-the-mouth academics who – who have your feet up on your desk all day, having students come in and bow down to you? Why don't you? Why don't you get some sweat on your brow and uh, and work hard? And if the administration doesn't like you, they boot you out and they hire somebody else. Well, there are two two problems. If we were in the private sector, at for profit in a for profit industry, I would say sure treat us that way. And the for profit colleges, that is the relationship the professors have with the employers. But at nonprofits and state institutions, we have a different responsibility. We're supposed to engage in the unrestricted search for the truth, both in the classroom and in our research. And if you're allowing administrators to control professors and then indirectly control students, then you've got people deciding what's true independent of the experts who are doing their best to figure that out. And then one of the particular problems is that administrators are more liberal than faculty are. So when you wait, 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 let me interrupt you, Josh. We know across America that faculties are extremely liberal. That is correct. And you're telling me that the administrators are even – how is it even possible? What, what are they, like Bernie Sanders supporters? Well, it's not just that their actual views are to the left. It's that a higher percentage of them are liberal. There are a lot of conservative professors. They're a minority, which is one of the reasons why we need all of the rules that protect professors in their search for the truth, in their research and in class. Because and the, outside of class too, isn't and, it? And outside of class with, the, with their public speaking like what you and I are doing right now today. Today, because without those protections, it's minorities who get punished by the administration for dissent. And in higher education, the minorities are the conservatives. So wait a second, Josh. So what, you know, here's the line that I hear from some conservatives. Th- these contracts, sometimes they're called tenure contracts. These contracts for academics, they just make it harder for us to fire professors. And we know that the vast majority of professors are a bunch of leftists, a bunch of liberals. And so all this does is protect a bunch of lazy liberal professors who don't want to do their work. And then you can't fire them because it's impossible to fire them under the old rules. Now, is that the kind of caricature of some liberals view and maybe not even a caricature? Is that actually accurate? It's certainly not. Most of the research indicates that professors work between 55 and 65 hours a week, so they're putting in very long hours, in part because we effectively have three jobs. We have to teach. We're obligated to conduct independent research, and we also have the responsibility to engage in what is called service, which is to help run the institution and to 
propagate our ideas, to explain our ideas out in the public like you and I are doing today on the radio. So when you have that much work, You've got 55 to 65 hours a week on average for a lot of professors. So professors are working very hard. But wait, Josh, that's an interesting point. I certainly subscribe to it based on the folks that I know. Uh, But what about, you know, there's going to be a bad apple in every bunch. Absolutely. And don't these rules protect the lazy liberal professors, you, the, the existing rules, not the new rules, so that you can't get rid of those lazy liberal professors. That's what I keep hearing from my conservative friends. So all rules are going to be somewhat over and under inclusive. Some The old rules provided more protection for people who are a little bit lazy than we would ideally like. The problem is, is that the new rules make it easy to get rid of professors who are working really hard but merely dissent from the administration's wait, orthodoxy. Wait, wait a second. So, Josh, are, if I can boil that down, are, what, is what you're telling me that under either set of rules, administrators are likely less concerned about getting rid of lazy workers than they are concerned about getting rid of noisy workers? I think that's right. I think they are concerned about both in fairness to them. And I think there is some of what we call dead wood in higher education. But most of the research indicates that most professors are working really hard. And to try to get rid of the few who are not working that hard at the price of making it easier for the administrators to silence dissent, to restrict research – to make it harder for conservatives to present their views in the classroom or in their research or in the media, that's a price not worth paying. I certainly think that if the number of lazy professors were 15, 20, 30 percent, then we could have a more reasonable debate about this. But when we pressed the University of Arkansas for information on this, they did not come forward with a shred of evidence that professors within our state at our university are not working hard enough. Well, maybe we should look at it this way. Josh, was it impossible to fire uh, uh, incompetent or otherwise uh, problematic uh, professors in terms of terms of work performance under the old rules? It wasn't hard to do that either. And when we pressed the university to give us examples of professors that they were not able to remove on grounds of incompetence or failure to do their job, they couldn't give us a single example. And had they ever fired anybody before? Yes. Under the old rules? Under the old rules, they had fired people. So under the old rules, they fired people, and they said, well, those rules aren't good enough because we want to fire more people? Fire more people and make it easier to do so when we when we decide we want someone to be eliminated. And, the, and those more people that they want to fire, uh, are you sus- suspicious that those people – could be overwhelmingly conservative. They could be the overwhelmingly people who dissent from the established views of the administration. Leftist views. and uh, Leftist views, and the people who are most likely to dissent from those views are conservatives like yourself. So in the end, when conservatives are saying tenure contracts are not good, they don't understand that tenure contracts that once, like in the 50s or 60s, protected communists— now protect the other minority, exactly. conservatives. Exactly. That's why we've got to be very careful as conservatives. You're not a conservative, but, but we conservatives have to be very careful when we start to take apart some of the rules in higher education 
because we may be taking apart those few rules that protect the few, and I'm, I'm less sanguine than you are as to the percentage. I think there's exceedingly few conservatives in higher education. Uh, and uh, I, I supported Donald Trump, as you know, throughout the, the last election, and I suspect I'm the only one at the law school. I haven't taken a poll, but I suspect I'm the only one at the law school who has done so. Uh, and so I think there are now there are I think there are at least one or two others who would vote for Republicans uh, regularly, uh, but nonetheless didn't support uh, the current president. Uh, but even that. That's small numbers. Wouldn't you agree with me? And legal education, law schools tend to be an area where the left to right balance is most heavily tilted in favor of the left. In fields like economics and the sciences, it's a little bit more balanced. But in law, in the humanities like English and literature, and in some of the social sciences like sociology and psychology, that's where the left right balance is way off. Josh, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation. Let's take a quick break and we'll pick it up on the backside. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Independence Day long weekend. I'm speaking with Josh Silverstein of the UA Little Rock Bowen School of Law. As you all likely know, I also teach there. Both of our views expressed here today are hours and hours alone and do not necessarily represent any individuals uh, at the school or the school itself. Josh, we were talking about how the new set of rules put into place by the University of Arkansas system uh, serves as a breach of the contract for those that were hired under the old set of rules. Uh, and I think conservatives and liberals alike should be concerned about enforcing contracts. Frankly, I think it's more of a conservative ideal, uh, the enforcement of contracts, because it allows us to do what we want, right? You can't have a contract for just anything, right? In the typical example of a prohibited contract is you can't have a contract for slavery, even if everybody, including the would-be slave, agrees. Thank goodness you can't have that. But the conservative view generally is for normal stuff you can have a contract for anything you want and once you do the state should enforce it if one side tries to back out of it or change it in one form or another so from a conservative legal perspective i think that's something worthy of pursuit but that might be a little bit highfalutin and academic for the average listener to be truly concerned about so is there any other reason that the listeners to the Dave Ellswick show should be concerned that somehow you've got to abide. And by, by you, I mean the faculty across this state has to abide by this new set of rules. How will that affect higher education in this state? So there are several ways in which this is going to be problematic. So the first is that it's going to make it more difficult for us to hire good faculty. We're a school that's trying to expand higher education to make it more available to a larger number of people. And higher education is largely about good professors teaching good students. It's simply going to be more difficult for us to hire good professors. Secondly, 
professors are going to be less likely to do research that's beneficial to society. Most of what we research in fields like law, economics, and the sciences, we hope at some point will be beneficial to society. Well, a lot of the research is controversial. And so if it's easier to fire professors, they are less likely to do research on controversial areas like affirmative action that could eventually accrue to the benefit of society and higher education. Uh, Josh, let me interrupt you on that front for a moment, if I may. So, of course, controversial um, research, controversial speaking, controversial teaching will be far more risky. Therefore, professors would be less likely to engage in it. But what kind of controversial, meaning controversial leftist ideas, controversial conservative ideas, controversial uh, Williamson from the Democratic debate ideas? What kind of ideas are we likely to lose first? I don't know what we'll lose first, but I think we'll lose all of those ideas. I think that's a nice list, we, but it will be especially viewpoints that tend to be in the minority. Meaning and conservatives. Meaning conservatives. And that's what is concerning. I think we'll also- But you're not a conservative, Josh. What are you pushing for conservative views in higher education? So I like to say that I'm a, a small L liberal first before a large L liberal. And by small L liberal- We mean freedom and opportunity for all ideas. Higher education is about the clash of ideas and will let the best ideas rise to the top. It's a lot like the market is about who's got the best product. That product will rise to the top. How can we have a clash of ideas in higher education if we're missing half the ideas? If we're missing the conservative ideas, I want conservatives standing Uh, on the top of their desks, screaming as loud as they can what their views are, because how can I learn if I'm only talking with people I already agree with? So without the conservatives, it becomes a leftist echo chamber. Exactly. And you don't want a leftist echo chamber. I do not want any echo chambers. I want diversity of opinion. I wanted... Uh, ideologically. I wanted people from different cultures in different countries. I want this giant melting pot of ideas where we're all struggling to figure out what the answers are, and we allow the truth to guide us as best we can. Josh, I think you're going to need to be careful. You've, you've said things about competing ideas. You've said things about a marketplace. I think that you're going to have to turn in your leftist ID card because the leftists are going to kick you out. These are not the types of views that leftists like. Leftists talk about indoctrination. Leftists don't talk about debate. Think about that as we go to break. This is a Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this glorious Independence Day weekend. We have been having a very nice conversation with my colleague from the Bowen School of Law, Josh Silverstein. Both of our views are are our views alone and do not necessarily represent those of the law school or the University of Arkansas at Little Rock or the University of Arkansas system. Josh and I have been talking about this lawsuit that's going on. Uh, Josh, there are three professors suing um, to enforce their contract rights. But three professors out of a bunch, what about the rest of the professors? Well, the lawsuit is seeking class action status, which basically means the three professors who are suing will act on behalf of all professors 
And so if the lawsuit is successful, the result of the lawsuit and the protections created by the lawsuit will apply to all professors. And from which schools uh, are the professors that have brought the suit so far? Who are they? There's one professor from the University of Arkansas at Medical Sciences, one professor, a colleague of ours at the law school, and one from the University of Arkansas Monticello campus. Oh, that's that's, uh, that's a pretty good spectrum. Yes, we've got a nice diversity. And and so we've got a medical school professor, a law school professor, and then a professor who teaches in philosophy and literature. So it's a nice diversity to represent the faculty as a whole. Well, and of course... I know the law school professor. He's actually a distinguished professor yes, at the law school. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's um, it's 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 interesting that you present this as actually protecting conservatives. I agree with you. I'm not suggesting that you present it contrary to uh, that. It, that it that this lawsuit to enforce contract rights. It's an important conservative view to protect contract rights. It's, cons- it's important to, pr- to protect the ability of conservatives to teach in higher education because we want those minority viewpoints in higher education, particularly Dave's audience, that would like, if they're sending their kids or if they're young people themselves uh, going to college, they would like to get exposure to those conservative viewpoints. And you express the view that you think that the new set of rules, if not challenged, uh, will result in fewer conservatives sharing their viewpoints in higher education. Uh, and so I think it's important to have that diversity of uh, viewpoints. Uh, what, what has the university said in response to the lawsuit? The university claims – that the new rules do not decrease protections or reflect any less of a commitment to freedom of speech and thought. And they are clearly mistaken in that belief. The old rules identified four uh, example grounds for which a professor could be terminated. The new rules identify 16. The old rules included things that were pretty extreme like incompetence, uh, action that is inconsistent with moral turpitude. The new rules – Wait, wait. So those are what you could have already been fired the, under the been, old, old under rules? Under the old rules, you could be fired for incompetence. So you could fire an incompetent person under the old rules? Absolutely. And it had happened? It had happened. And now what's the – what is – give me the, the most egregious one that they added to the new rules that they could fire you for. The most egregious one – is basically they can fire us for not being nice. Wait, what? Wait, wait, no, you're, you're joking, right? That, that can't be serious. There's something in higher education called collegiality, which is... Yeah, being nice. Being nice. And so the rules now say that if you engage in a pattern of conduct that is detrimental to the productive and efficient operation of the instructional or work environment, that you can be fired. Wait, 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 wait. wait. I, I get it. First of all... I, I think you're wrong, Josh. I don't think that's not being nice. I think it includes that, but I think it's far worse oh, than it, that. Oh, it, it is much worse than that. It basically means if you are getting in the way of any aspect of the operation of the university, they can throw you out. Wait a second. So if you write, as I've done, by the way, on admissions uh, and you write from a conservative perspective, which I do because I'm a conservative, so I write from my perspective – And I write about, amongst other things, affirmative action, and I say, which I have in my articles, that affirmative action is actually harming people often that it's designed to help. 
doesn't that automatically fit that language? Read me that language again. A pattern of conduct that is detrimental to the productive and efficient operation of the instructional or work environment. Well, that Soviet-style language there about productivity and efficiency and workplace, uh, I can see the hammer and the sickle waving in the background already. If I say the way you're, you, but not only here, but any, any school, the way schools are admitting students is not good, isn't that detrimental to their whatever Soviet-style language that you just read? If you and I are writing memos to our colleagues explaining why particular policies at the law school are bad, we are interfering with the instructional or work environment. And and if I'm writing articles for, for academics to read across the country about those same types of programs? Right. Basically, that language is broad enough that a tenured faculty member could be terminated for just about anything the administration doesn't like. Well, so then I would stop writing my articles. What's the big deal? Well, the kind of the primary purpose of higher education institutions is to teach our students and produce new knowledge. If you're not producing new knowledge, that's half of higher education that we've just thrown out the window. Well, you you lefties can just rehash the dribble that you guys publish already. Isn't that good? Do you want us to be doing that without any opportunity for you to respond? I don't, but don't you want that? No, I want you responding because we often go too far, and it's a balance. I want both sides to be strong and loud. It reminds me back in my home state of Illinois when the Democrats took such strong control of state government in 2002, I started working. Because I was afraid with no Republicans to balance them out, the Democrats would become corrupt. And sure enough, Governor Blagojevich ended up in jail, as did many of his allies. We don't want one-party rule, as you put it, Soviet-style one-party rule. We don't want it in government. We don't want it in education. You know, your your reference to Blagojevich, I actually got that out correctly, I think, uh, from Illinois, the convicted um, governor— and the corruption that he undertook it raises a question in my mind, which is, let's say one of us or anybody who works in higher education spots some form of corruption and we out that corruption. Wouldn't that be contrary? Can you read that language back to me? Wouldn't that be contrary to the efficient operation of the Soviet style operation? Yes. So, the, again, the rule says a pattern of conduct that is detrimental to, to, to the productive and efficient operation of the instructional or work environment. Whistleblowing can be very detrimental to the efficiency of the instructional or work environment. So this creates a greater basis to uh, discipline or even fire someone for engaging in whistleblowing, for pointing out wrongdoing in the university setting. Oh, but then I could just sue them under the Whistleblower Act, couldn't I? At least I've got that backstop. Not if you want to get money, because under the sovereign immunity rules, you would not be able to use that statute to recover your losses. So I'm out of luck. Basically. I, there's an internal rule, and then there's a law, and I'm out of luck it's if a, I want to be a whistleblower. It's a catch-22. So it strikes me that the lawsuit that's being pursued could have the effect of ensuring um, or I don't know about ensuring, but at least decreasing the likelihood of corruption in higher education. Exactly. Because the lawsuit, if it reinstitutes the old rules for current faculty, 
they will have the protections they previously had where the rules made it so that any type of speech on any topic was protected, and that is no longer true. But, but Josh, in, in reality, I mean, there's, higher education doesn't have any corruption, right? I mean, it works just as well as anything else. Well, but every area has corruption. Every area has problems. There have been issues with the way money has been spent at various campuses, including up in northwest Arkansas. There has been problems with the production of documents. So, look, I would like to believe that higher education does a better job than most other institutions, but every institution is susceptible to corruption. We need watchdogs for every type of institution, and so we need rules that create incentives for the people in those institutions, business, government, education, to come forward when there's wrongdoing because there is wrongdoing. Yeah. Well, that that certainly uh, strikes me as a persuasive argument here. Uh, now, you're in, you're in state court or you're in federal court? We're in federal court. And And... What is your – what would be the, the outcome that you would like to see come about from this lawsuit? In an ideal world, the lawsuit would do two things. First, the court would rule that the university is not allowed to apply these rules to faculty who were hired under the old rules. Secondly, because the university does have the legal authority to apply the new rules to new hires – we would like them to reconsider that and repeal the new rules because once they see that the new rules are illegal as applied to current faculty, it'd be nice if the board of trustees and the higher-ups in the rest of the administration rethought these rules. And rather than having two sets of rules apply to different groups of faculty, they reinstituted the old rules or possibly worked with faculty to come up with a set of rules that – would appropriately protect freedom of speech in research and teaching, while at the same time giving the university the flexibility they need to run the institution. I think we could have come up with a compromise proposal, but they essentially refused to negotiate with faculty throughout the process. Well, if you had a compromise, th then you'd have to have faculty under the old rules agree to change your contract. That is correct. I see. And I think a lot of faculty would be willing to do that if the rules provided the right protections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what input did you have before these rules, these new rules were put into place? Well, some of us, including the two of us, worked very hard to try to get our opinions and perspectives and analysis before the Board of Trustees and certain members of the administration. Unfortunately, most of what we did was ignored, and it wasn't just us. There were uh, the governing bodies of faculty at many of the other campuses within the University of Arkansas system produced reports objecting to the changes, and most of what they wrote was essentially ignored. This was rammed through in just a few months, and it would have been gone through in about a month after the faculty were told about it if we hadn't put up resistance, but there was never a real opportunity to have the type of negotiation between faculty and administration that I think could have come up with a better set of rules that would have satisfied all sides. Would you say even even if it was extended for a few months, how long did it take the university to write these new rules? Well, as far as we can tell, they were working on this behind the scenes 
without any input from faculty for up to a year. And the rules were being written by lawyers who have no experience serving as teachers, professors, and researchers. It would be the equivalent of lawyers rewriting the rules for a hospital without talking to the doctors. They rewrote the rules without talking to the professors. And in what universe do you want people who don't fully understand the institutions they're writing about setting the rules? That's interesting. That's interesting. Now, what I do know a little bit more about is the bill that Senator Hammer uh, proposed to the Education Committee didn't make it out of committee, and you and I both worked on that bill. Right. Tell the audience uh, what that bill would have done. That bill was entitled the Freedom of Contract in Higher Education Act, and the goal of that bill was basically to tell universities – Once you've entered into a contract with your employees, you can't change that contract on your own. But wait, wait a second. Isn't that the law already? I thought I thought the whole point of a contract is one side can't change it. It's like one hand clapping. It is the law already, and that's why we think the lawsuit will be successful. But sometimes when particular parts of society don't follow the rules – that are currently in place, it's sometimes worth it to pass a statute to make it even clearer, to reinforce what the rules are. And so while the Arkansas Constitution and the U.S. Constitution and Arkansas general law all protect contract rights, and that's the basis for the lawsuit, adding this statute would have simplified things, and that's what made the statute worthwhile. This is really fascinating stuff. Let's take a break now, and we'll come back, and I want to ask you about this other lawsuit that you personally are involved with as well. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck, your guest host on this wonderful Independence Day weekend. We are talking with Josh Silverstein from the U of A Little Rock School of Law. Did I get it right? I think I put an extra syllable or something in there. Close enough. Uh, Bowen School of Law. He's my colleague. He's my friend. He's far more informed on these issues than am I. Josh, we were just talking uh, at length about this lawsuit by three professors. You're not a plaintiff. You're not a party to that lawsuit against the university. That is correct. I am not one of the named plaintiffs in that case. But you are a party in another lawsuit. Is that right? That is correct. But it's, it's not you suing your neighbor for making noise or something that we wouldn't care about, is it? No, it is. Many people have heard about the construction project called 30 Crossing, which is to expand the Interstate 30 bridge over the Arkansas River from its current six lanes to 10. Wait, wait, wait. So what are you against that? I mean, I've, I've gone on that bridge at rush hour to get over to North Little Rock, and there's a real bottleneck. Now, it doesn't take that long, frankly, but there's a real bottleneck there, isn't there? There is a bottleneck there, but the, there are two problems or two sets of problems. The first is winding the bridge won't do anything to solve the bottleneck because all it will do is encourage more traffic to take that road rather than other roads. It's what what people who are called traffic engineers call induced demand. If you increase the lanes, the cars will come. 
So increasing the lanes won't solve the bottleneck problem. But that's actually a secondary concern. I live downtown, and so that's my residential community. I also work downtown, as you do. And so the concern here that I have primarily is that the construction is going to make a bunch of changes to the roads downtown that is really going to damage the environment and the social and cultural structure of the downtown area. It's going to hurt residential growth. It's going to hurt the pollution down there, and it's really going to be bad for the downtown area. And everyone knows that to have a strong city, you have to have a strong downtown. And so expanding the highway the way they want to expand it and disrupting all of the routes downtown with the downtown streets, it's really going to damage the downtown area. People know with the river market and other neighborhoods surrounding it, there's been a lot of growth downtown. This will damage the downtown growth and it won't help commuters, so it's bad for everyone. I like I like the River Market area. I like to come down there. I love the the Flying Fish. I think is a fantastic Arkansas Little Rock establishment that really it's an institution. It's an institution. That's a better word. That's what I should have used. That's why I have you on the show because you you fill in my ignorance. It really is an institution, and if if you have a friend in town, you got to go there. It's just it's so reflective of this community. It's a wonderful place. So. I don't understand. If you have uh, uh, this bridge, you're going to expand it. How does that affect my ability to enjoy this uh, downtown river market area? So the most important change they're going to make that's problematic is they're planning on eliminating the Cantrell exit. And that's going to send all of the traffic that wants to get off the highway there to 3rd, 4th, 5th, and those streets. And those streets, even if they get rid of the parking on those streets. Which Wait, we're get talk- rid of the parking? Yes, even if they get rid of the parking. Don't on get some- rid of the parking. I can barely park now. So it's going to – even if they get rid of the parking, there will be so much traffic on those streets. It's going to create massive traffic jams on downtown streets there's way too much traffic on that little area by the way you know i'm from new york and i lived in new york city for many years so i know from traffic and that downtown river market area is not good for traffic during much of the day and the parking is already a nightmare are you telling me they're contemplating with these changes taking away what little parking there is there is a lot of parking that will be eliminated and it will greatly increase the number of cars that are on those roads. So one of the great things about what's called the Cantrell Interchange or the Cantrell Exit is you can go directly from the highway to Cantrell and not... I do that. Many people do. 15,000 cars a day do and not interfere with the rest of the downtown. If uh, under these changes, you're going to dump me out on President Clinton, the the downtown area, basically? Actually, you're probably going to dump you out on 4th Street. And so rather than two stoplights that are perfectly timed, there will be six stoplights that are not perfectly timed. And it's going to create a massive backlog on getting off the highway onto those streets because they're going to decrease the total number of exits as well in the downtown area. That's a nightmare. That's one of the reasons why I agreed to be one of the plaintiffs suing the Arkansas Department of Transportation to stop or change the project. This is a state project, a city project, both? It's a project primarily driven by RDOT, by the Arkansas Department of Transportation, and it's using a combination of state and federal funding. I see. Now, where is the the new mayor on this? So the mayor used to be a member of the Arkansas Department of Transportation, and so he has been one of the leading proponents of this project. Wait, 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 what? 
Wait, you know what? We're, we're going to have to hold you over, Josh. Okay. I know you're going to just stay the hour, but we're going to have to hold you over because you're telling me that the current mayor of Little Rock wants to essentially gut the downtown by flooding it with traffic, removing what few parking spots there are. I tell this joke to folks that I know back from the Northeast who live in New York City. It's a huge city. Parking's a nightmare in New York City. I say, parking in Little Rock is worse. And they laugh at me. I say, I ain't joking. I ain't kidding. And that it sounds like they will destroy the downtown and the mayor of the city is for this? Yes. Oh, now now we've got to talk about this after the break because uh, I've ar- I already planned on talking about some of the curious actions of our mayor. This is now bordering on, well, luckily we only have a few seconds before I can fill in that blank. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck, uh, returning with Josh Silverstein, talking to us about this uh, I-30 interchange uh, lawsuit. Let me, by the way, uh, do a couple of uh, disclosures. I want to thank uh, today's producer, Zach Thomas, who's been doing a wonderful job for us. I also want to remind listeners that Senator Kim Hammer has a show now on Saturdays from noon to one, and you can catch tomorrow's show talking about drug prices. Uh, Kim always tries to stay up on local topics that interest Arkansans everyday lives. And this lawsuit that we're talking with Josh about strikes me as the same. And Josh, you were just telling me now, and I was frankly somewhat shocked to hear that this proposal would result in more traffic downtown and less parking. Exactly. Good summary. Well, but which I, I can't think of a worse description for a traffic redesign than more traffic, less parking. You right? are correct. That's like saying, hey, we've invented this new food, more fat, less nourishment. <laughs> Right? Like what? It's that's an awful idea, and you've been telling me that the mayor supports this. I, I got to tell you, I'm actually at a loss. I understand when he used to work for the Department of Transportation in some form or another that he was supporting it then. But you would think that the mayor of Little Rock would be concerned about exploiting the natural resources that we have, which is our downtown. And by the way, before you address that further, let me share with you that I learned that the mayor of Little Rock apparently announced that at public meetings, subject to the Open Meetings Act, that if someone says offensive things, uses curse words, etc., He's going to kick them out of the meeting. He's entitled to do that. It's probably a good idea. We don't need people going half-cocked at these meetings. But then he's going to thereafter unilaterally ban them for three months, which, as far as I can understand, is contrary to the Open Meetings Act. I've written a little book on that, by the way. And contrary to the First Amendment. And if this is true, and I don't know whether it is or not, but if this is true... I'm going to come down to those meetings and I'll read off George Carlin's seven dirty words. I'll use the curse words in as polite a fashion I can, but I'll use them and I'll invite them to ban me for three months so that I can file a lawsuit. 
I'm really at a loss to understand how these elected officials we were talking about, Tim Griffin with his chief of staff earlier today, and how down-to-earth he is, how approachable he is, how much he understands that he works for the people. But when I hear elected officials telling me that they are going to ban Arkansas citizens from public meetings, that doesn't sound like uh, an Arkansas state or local representative who's working for Arkansans. It sounds like he thinks Arkansans work for him. In any event, I've gotten a bit off on a tangent, which is so unusual, you likely know, for me. So tell me, how does how can you reconcile the interests of a mayor who should be a cheerleader for a city and this plan regarding the I-30? So I think there's two factors at play here. The first is he was the leading proponent of this project when Mayor Scott was on the Arkansas Department of Transportation. And so I think he's sort of drank the Kool-Aid and it's very hard for him to step back and now think about it from this alternative perspective as mayor. I think that's part of it. Uh, I think another part of it is he perceives this as being a done deal, so why does he want to spend time on it? So uh, one of the reasons we filed the lawsuit is we don't think it's a done deal. And so we want to stop this project from doing all the damage that we believe it will do. But I think the biggest factor is he was so committed to this as part of the Arkansas Department of Transportation, he's not able to kind of shift gears and start thinking about it from the perspective of, well, Little Rock in particular. Somebody's got to be in favor of this thing. Somebody's uncle's got to be getting rich off this deal, as I used to say about when I would see these odd projects going up around this state or other states. I would always say, well, somebody's uncle is getting rich on that. Whose uncle is getting rich on this deal? I wish I knew, but what we do know is that the Arkansas Department of Transportation strongly believes that this project is necessary, and there were some a few downtown interests that thought getting rid of the Cantrell Interchange might be a good idea, uh, which I think they're crazy for thinking that. And the vast majority of people concerned about how the downtown operates disagreed with that decision. But there was a small group that did want to get rid of it. But I, I wish I knew more as to what the underlying motivations are because what we see is a project that will likely not solve any of the problems for which it is designed and instead will likely simply create many new problems. Well, okay, let me ask it another way. What problem is it supposed to solve? So it is supposed to solve the problem that you identified, which is the bottleneck in the bridge area where you're crossing the Arkansas River. It is designed to solve that problem. But I, wait, wait, wait. Uh, fair enough. But what I don't understand is – Oh, that's the widening of the that's lanes. That's the widening of the lanes. But then they're shutting off one of the entranceways to that road. Oh, yeah. So one of their claims for shutting off that entrance is that it was too dangerous. There have been too many accidents, even though there have been virtually no accidents. Their own internal study showed that there was less than one accident per year, I think, was the numbers. It was really, really minor. And so... But that's the kind of thing... I'm sorry to interrupt, mm -hmm. Josh. But that's the kind of thing that makes me suspicious, meaning there's a logic to widening it. It might not 
produce the outcome that right. is desired, but you could at least articulate a claim that, well, if you widen it, you'll get less of a bottleneck. You describe a reason why that may, in fact, not be the case. That's open to interpretation and ultimately to be determined by empirical evidence. But widening the lane, but shutting off access to that means because I use that lane. I've got to wind around. So I'm not going to have the bottleneck on the bridge. I'm going to spend another 15 minutes getting on the bridge. Right. So it seems to me that you've combined two completely disparate ideas here. Widening, which arguably should open up some opportunity for more traffic uh, to flow. And cutting off access, which does exactly the opposite. Right, exactly. It just doesn't make sense. They also claimed, in addition to the safety justification, which just looked like a pretext to me, they also claimed that eliminating the Cantrell interchange would increase development because they're thinking about putting in a they're thinking about putting in a park where the Cantrell interchange is. Well, there are a couple problems with that. One, there's no money for the park. Secondly, even if there were, what good is a park if it's so difficult to get to it that no one wants to go to it? So their their safety justification makes very little sense and their development justification it's actually the exact opposite, that by making it more difficult to get to the downtown, to live in the downtown, to work in the downtown, to move around downtown, that's going to hurt development downtown, not help it. But maybe, and I don't know, but just describing the situation as you did, it strikes me that maybe there are some high-rise developers, either commercial or residential or both, that see the opportunity when they tear out that cantrell interchange to put some big buildings in there and get high rent uh, tenants in there. And so they're pushing for this because they see a money interest, even though it will impact negatively the downtown area. Is that possible? I think it's possible, but the there's already several tall buildings down there. It's not clear there's enough demand for another high-rise. There are demands for uh, three-story type apartment complexes and condos. But what they're talking about doing is putting some type of park in there. So there'd be kind of a communal place for people to aggregate and yeah, hang out. Yeah, but those ideas often change once... Nothing right. would surprise me at this right. point, right. especially because there doesn't seem to be enough money to put the park in place or to solve the parking problems that will exist once they get rid of a bunch of parking spots. The parking and the traffic downtown strike me as really significant problems because I like the downtown. And as I mentioned to you and Dave's audience, I really love the Flying Fish, for example. But I go there less frequently than, frankly, I would like to because of the parking. Right. Because... I will meet you or other colleagues or friends down there from time to time, and either I or one of us in the group will say, you know, let's not go there this time. The the parking and the traffic is such a hassle. Let's go out west. We'll go to the Flying Fish next time. And we do, but we go less often than we would if parking and traffic were not already an issue. One of the great things about Arkansas in comparison to large cities like New York, where you're from, in Chicago, where I'm from, is that it's generally easy to get around and find cheap or even free parking. 
The downtown is the one area that's at a commute there. Making it worse through getting rid of the Cantrell exit is going to hurt the downtown even more in relation to the other neighborhoods that it's competing with for business, tourists, etc. Unfortunate. We have a caller. I don't know on what topic. uh, Bill is the caller. Bill, uh, welcome to the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, Tell us what you think. Well, thank you for letting me be on, and I appreciate the topics that uh, you two have been discussing. They're most interesting. Uh, I like the law, and I love my Constitution. Um, you were talking about the uh, Oak developing a park where the Cantrell Exchange is. Uh, did I not just recently hear that uh, the city is closing the Heinemann Park and the uh, Fair Park golf courses? Yeah, I think that's right. They, they, well, they're repurposing them, as I understand it. I think the claim is that having them as golf courses does not provide enough resources to the whole community. And that may be true, although I do think golfers kind of get dumped on a little bit under the false claim that it is an elitist sport. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm not suggesting necessarily that we should keep those golf courses open. Frankly, I think if those golf courses cost more than they are receiving in greens fees from people playing on them, that's a good argument to convert them over to some other broader use, which may not raise as much money but would open up the opportunities. Uh, but it's an interesting yep. question. How does, uh, Josh, um, how do, do you think the closing of those golf courses relates to this notion of building a new park downtown? I think it relates at a general level that if we don't have the resources to maintain these parks as golf courses, where are the resources going to come to build a completely new park? Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And but- what kind of park is it? There's been no specifics provided at all at this stage that I know of. Interesting. Well, thank you for taking my call. You have a good day. Thank you for calling, Bill. We appreciate your thoughts. We'll take a break now, and we'll come back uh, in a few minutes. This is a Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this holiday, July 4th weekend. We just had some very nice conversations, one with Josh Silverstein from the Bowen School of Law, one with David Ray the chief of staff for the lieutenant governor, really a great guy. David is as well as the lieutenant governor and hopefully the next governor of this great state of Arkansas. So we're going to now change topics a little bit. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about this interesting case that happened at Oberlin College. I don't know if you all are aware of this, but Oberlin College had a, or I think still has, a bakery across the street. And some students came in and shoplifted from the bakery. And one of the employees, family member of the owner, held the shoplifter. And a whole hoopla ensued. The shoplifter happened to be a minority. The former chief diversity officer at Oberlin, who was then a senior member of the university's administration, fostered protests against this bakery, accusing the bakers of being racist. Well, it turns out that 
the students, students or students who were caught shoplifting were arrested and pled guilty to, you guessed it, shoplifting. Meaning they weren't stopped because of their race. They were stopped because of the product that they stuffed in a backpack or in their pockets before they tried to leave the baker, bakery. But the left got a hold of it. They started protests. They pulled out their tried and true weapon, the only one they've got in their deck of cards, and they called the baker and the bakery racist. So the baker did something interesting. He sued, as he should. And he sued, amongst others, the university because they actively fomented the false claims of racism. And this dean was intimately involved in producing these false protests. Real protests, but with a false basis. And the Bakers were awarded something along the lines of $45 million that was reduced by the judge due to some technicalities which were appropriate and that reduction is okay and $25 million is still a lot of money. A lot of money. And the headline that I read, Oberlin President refuses to apologize for defamation of grocery leading to record $25 million award. Meaning now that they've lost the case, you'd think they'd want to take some responsibility. You'd think they'd want to own up to their own behavior. Nope. Not going to do it. If I may quote the Dana Carvey mockery of President Bush. Not going to do it. Why not? Well, first of all, here's something interesting. As I told you, this senior administrator was a more junior administrator in charge of racial diversity or maybe just diversity. In fact, I don't think they call it racial diversity, although it usually devolves to just that. It would be nice to see some sort of diversity of, oh, thought. There's a crazy idea, diversity of thought. Oh, you're a different this, but we all think alike. That's not so important, is it? To the lefties, it is. And by the way, Oberlin reflects this national trend of increasing the number of administrators relative to students, relative to faculty at the college. I'm not sure I know of any college that has not significantly increased the number of bureaucrats, meaning administrators, across this country. Here's a crazy idea. Increase the number of teachers. But there's this new model. It's a bureaucratic bloat, and it's a bureaucratic growth model, and that is bad for education. But in any event, back to the story. So what happens at Oberlin? Oberlin, as an institution, supports these false claims of racism, and the president shows no contrition. After we go to our break in a few seconds... I'm going to let you know exactly what that president had to say. And you will be, I dare say, shocked to hear it. Meanwhile, the news.
This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this July 4th weekend. We are talking about this controversy at Oberlin College in which the university itself participated in protests falsely claiming, I read, by the way, in a grocery store that the, gro- that the grocer, the owner and the store was racist against shoplifters. So I'm reading from an article now by Jonathan Turley. He's a noted lawyer, incidentally. President Carmen Twilly Ambar of Oberlin then issued statements that infuriated many by dismissing any responsibility by her college staff or the college as a whole. Indeed, she refused to apologize because she said it might irritate some students. Think about that. It might irritate some students. So truth and falsity is no longer the metric by which we measure what we do. It's all feelings. It's all tree-hugging. This is the nonsense, of course, that led to what happened with Nike. You all know what happened with Nike. Colin Kaepernick protested because Nike put out a shoe that had the Betsy Ross flag on the back of the shoe. That's the flag that instead of having... The 50 stars has the 13 stars in a circle because there were just 13 colonies at the time. Now, the claim by Kaepernick, get this, is that the flag is racist. Why is that flag racist? Hmm. Because we've heard that claim, by the way, for example, about the Confederate battle flag. Now, that is a more complicated discussion because that battle flag was used to support slavery. There's no dispute about that. So then people say, well, this and that. I'm not going to get in the middle of that debate right now. But that's a debate. And the claim that there are racist elements uh, involved in the battle flag, that's a true statement. Whether that's all what it means, that's, I guess, what the debate is. What's the debate over the Betsy Ross flag? The debate over the Betsy Ross flag, according to Kaepernick, is... Well, there was slavery at the time of the creation of this country, and that flag was created at that time. Wait, so are we going to tear down the Washington Monument? You know, Washington had slaves. Let's be clear. That was a significant flaw, even though he was a product of his time. Why do I say that? That language is similar to the language used in the Bible about Noah. Noah was a flawed man, but he was a great man of his time. He was a drunk but a great man of his time. Washington was a great man of his time, but he had a serious flaw in which he participated in slavery. But I still think he, I know he was one of the founding fathers, and I think we should revere him overall. I don't think we should tear down the Washington Monument. I don't think we should rename Washington, D.C. I don't think we should rename George Washington University. So the mere fact that the flag was from a time in which there was slavery? That's a bit attenuated, don't you think? But in any event, here's the beauty of it. Kaepernick can believe believe that. I have no objection to him believing it. No objection to him saying it. If he wants to take a radical view of the iconic symbols of America, meaning he wants to discard it all, he's perfectly free to do that. That's not an illegitimate position for him to take. I don't agree with it. I don't agree with flag burning, by the way. But it's constitutional. 
And I know you. there are conservatives that are listening to me right now and say, well, it shouldn't be. I'm not sure that's right. You don't have to like everything that is said under the First Amendment to believe in the First Amendment. The Nazis marched in Skokie. My relatives were murdered by Nazis. And I support the Nazis' right to, to march in Skokie, Illinois, as did their lawyer from the ACLU, who was a religious observant Jew. He didn't like their statements either. So let's, let's separate the message from the ability to deliver the message if you want to. So Kaepernick is free to say those things. I'm not offended by what he says. I think they're wrong. Sure. I think most of the things Kaepernick says or does are wrong. But so what? I got to tell you, I don't pay much attention to Kaepernick. But who did? Nike did. Nike did. Because Nike thought, here's what we do. We bend, we kowtow to every leftist who raises an issue. So we produce anodyne, boring nonsense all the time. We produce pablum. We produce oatmeal stew. Gray mush. Nobody can object to that. Nobody likes it, but nobody can object to it. But guess what? We conservatives have found a voice. And the voice is to say to those companies that are pressured by leftists, don't think you're going to sell to us. We ain't interested anymore. You're going to kowtow to the leftists. You could have put out a statement saying, well, we understand Mr. Kaepernick has his First Amendment rights and we appreciate his comments and we would like to engage in a conversation with him. We think he raises some important issues, albeit not ones that would warrant removing this iconic flag. This iconic flag, by the way, that flew quite literally at the inauguration of President Obama. So it wasn't too racist for the inauguration of President Obama, but it's too racist for Kaepernick. By the way, he can say, that's right, that's right. I don't like it, I don't care. I'm not judged by the standards dictated to me by President Obama. I certainly stand by that view, and maybe Kaepernick does on the left. That's fine, he can do that. But for Nike to fold like a cheap suit Instead of simply saying, we appreciate your comments, Mr. Kaepernick. We really do. Let's have a conversation. But we're not pulling the shoes. We're not pulling the shoes. That was an unwise business decision in the end, I believe the evidence will demonstrate. And then there's this Georgetown professor, uh, Michael Dyson, Michael Eric Dyson, he's on MSNBC all the time. He equated the flag, the Betsy Ross flag, with the Nazi flag. Does this sound familiar, folks? Of course it does, because this is the same as AOC calling the de- the camps, what are they, the detention centers, in which Immigrants seeking asylum voluntarily go, voluntarily go to, meaning we're not pulling in people seeking asylum. They come knocking on our door and we tell them simply, well, we've got to figure out if you're entitled to asylum. So you've got to stay here. And some of those environments may not be 
the Ritz-Carlton or anything close to it. And she calls them concentration camps. And what are concentration camps? They're the places that the Nazis forcibly forcibly put people into in which they were worked to death, they were shot to death, and then they were sent to extermination camps thereafter. Is that going on at these detention centers where people are voluntarily coming to because they want asylum in our country? Absolutely not. And it's a joke. It's an absolute joke to use that term. Well, says the left, you know, the Nazi regime didn't start all at once. They started with these incremental changes. We got to call out these Nazi-like behaviors. But this is not a Nazi-like behavior. Hitler was a vegetarian. Are you going to say that every vegetarian is a Nazi? You can draw all sorts of parallels. Hitler spoke to the people. Every elected official speaks to the people. Does that mean they're Nazis? This false equation to Nazism. You can equate things to Nazism. There have been events that are equatable to Nazism. What Stalin did in his own own country, the Soviet Union, you could equate that to Nazism. Uh, What went on in some of the civil wars with ethnic cleansing in uh, Africa, you could equate that to Nazism. But you can't equate this to Nazism. And it's unclear whether she's being political in her statements to try to gin up attention or she's just remarkably ignorant or a combination of the two. So we have Michael Eric Dyson saying that the Betsy Ross flag, which flew over the inauguration of the first black president of the United States, is the equivalent to him having hung the Nazi flag during that inauguration. You have AOC calling detention centers concentration camps. And you have Nike buckling like a cheap suit. But you know what we say? We say we're not going to take it anymore. We're not going to take it anymore. We're not going to listen to this blather from the left and buckle under. So when they falsely accuse, as they did, as Kaepernick did here to Nike, falsely accuse racism, like happened in the Oberlin College, we're going to fight back. We're going to sue if we're those grocers at Oberlin. We're going to tell Nike, we're not going to buy your products anymore. If you're going to buckle under to race baiting, that is the false accusation of racism, the Betsy Ross flag is not racist, folks. Sorry. The position that the Betsy Ross flag is racist is nonsense. Absolute nonsense. That's what, that's why this is not a debate. This is not a discussion. We have complicated issues of race to still confront, although this is not a racist country. But we still have issues of race to confront. These ain't them, folks. This is Mickey Mouse BS. This is Mickey Mouse Shinola. That's what this is. This is nonsense. But the left is going to still spin it up like it's a cotton candy machine. And you see cranky old Joe getting caught in the cotton candy. You see 
Bernie caught up in the cotton candy? You see all of these Democratic nominees caught up in the cotton candy because they don't know how to deal with these issues. It's part of why Hillary lost the last election. Absolutely. You call people a bunch of deplorables and a bunch of racists, and you think there's not going to be a price to pay for that? You think you you can call this country a racist country, and you don't think there'll be a price to pay for that? It's not a racist country, so there should be a price to pay for it. Is there racism? Of course there is. I'm Jewish. Is there anti-Semitism? Of course there is. Is it an anti-Semitic country? Absolutely not. Let me remind you that my father fled from Nazi occupation, from Soviet rule, went and fought in the War of Independence in Israel, and came to America, to America, the freest country in the world and the greatest country in the world. Is that jingoism? It might be, but it's also true. Think about that on this Independence Day weekend as we take a commercial break. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this July 4th wonderful holiday weekend. Let me get a few comments out of the way because we only have a few minutes left. It's hard to believe after these four hours. First, I'd like to thank Dave for having me on today. It has been an immense honor and pleasure to sit in your golden chair. Then I would also remind everybody that Senator Kim Hammer has a radio show here on 101.1 tomorrow and every Saturday from noon to one. He'll be discussing drug prices tomorrow and will generally be discussing issues of great interest to Arkansans. And finally, uh, let me thank all of you for your patience with me. I realize I'm no Dave Ellswick. I hope I have made your fifth and your holiday weekend a little bit more enjoyable than it was before you started listening. So we were talking about Kaepernick and how he objected to the Betsy Ross flag and how actually, I don't blame Kaepernick. He's got a bunch of kooky ideas. Here's the thing about America. You're allowed to have kooky ideas. It's the 4th of July. We're celebrating our diversity. We're celebrating the First Amendment. You're allowed to say stupid things. That was a stupid thing that he said, and he's guaranteed the right to say it. God bless him. God bless him. But Nike rolled over like a dog with fleas. And Nike should pay the price. And they've been paying the price, by the way. But it reflects what? This broader problem that we have. That everybody's afraid. Oh, well, somebody might be offended. Somebody might not like that. Somebody, some delicate daisy might need special coddling. Well, sure enough, On this point, the New York Times discusses that a study on trigger warnings, you know what trigger warnings, those are not the things that go on a gun that say, don't pull here unless bad guy or animal in front of it. No, that's not what a trigger warning is. A trigger warning is what some people want to say in school, in colleges, in universities, maybe high schools as well, to tell students, oh, we're going to discuss something difficult, not difficult in terms of complicated mathematics, difficult, like we're going to discuss the Holocaust. We're going to discuss slavery. We're going to discuss murder. We're going to discuss rape. 
The latter of two, of course, are topics discussed in law school all the time. And so we have to say, we don't have to, to be clear. No one has imposed this on us, in, at least in Arkansas. But the suggestion of a trigger warning is tell them, oh, be forewarned. You might be delicate. Here's what we're going to talk about. Wait, what? You're in law school or you're in college and you're taking a a class on uh, the 20th century or the 21st century or the 18th century and you're going to learn something bad happened during that period? Really? Really? You're in law school in in a criminal law class and you realize uh, only after the fact that you're going to hear something about murder or rape or robbery? Really? And sure enough, it's still nascent, it's still young, but the studies suggest these trigger warnings don't do anything. I'm not trying to tell professors who want to offer these trigger warnings to students not to do it. Do it. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. But what I'm telling the audience here, Dave's audience here, more broadly is this constant attempt to coddle everyone. To worry that there might be some delicate daisy out there in the audience who needs special protection from hearing, from hearing something. Not from getting punched, not from getting pushed, not from getting assaulted, not from getting a milkshake thrown on them or cement thrown on them or getting beaten. No, from words. Protection from words. And my response to it is, you're not building a strong nation if that's what you're modeling, if that's what you're teaching. You need to be able to to handle bad words. You need to be able to respond, to debate, or at least to walk away. It's really not very complicated. I think that's part of the modern conservative movement. It's to say, we're not going to bow to the pressure of someone who decides he or she is the most sensitive. This is not the peanut allergy on the plain world that we live in. We are not going to treat everywhere we walk around like every word out of our mouth is a peanut and everybody around us has a peanut allergy. You don't like the words coming out of my mouth? Don't listen to them. That's what you can do. Don't listen to them. Well, I'm a student in your class in some school in high school in Arkansas or in Missouri or somewhere else. Well, guess what? Public education ain't always fun. You think I enjoyed every moment of my public education? Gosh, no. You think I agreed with everything my generally leftist professors and teachers in high school had to say? Gosh, no. But I listened to them, and then I told them they're wrong. And they listened back to me. Because that was a time when the left understood that more thought, more debate, more discussion was good for America. So in in this final minute, think about that as you celebrate This wonderful holiday, the July 4th, the freedom 
the freedom that people literally died for was so that you can say something that somebody else doesn't like and they can say the same back to you. God bless America. God bless Arkansas. Thank you to the Dave Ellswick Show. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.